listeners. The episode you're about to hear is a three-hour-long episode that I recorded with Kat Kemp about the movie Freaks from 1932. It's an incredible episode, I think one of my best, and only the first hour and a half is going to be available for free for my regular listeners. So if you are just itching to get that next hour and a half of this discussion, you'll just have to sign up for my Patreon. My patrons got this episode early and they also got it in full. That is patreon.com slash giallo. And you're going to want to sign up at the Woman on the Warpath, Vampire Lovers, or Murder Mommy Tears to get this episode. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you sign up. We've got a wonderful Discord community and so much supplemental education and discussion going on over there. I hope to see you soon. You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Go, 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 go.
listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm back with another main episode. And I say this about every episode, but I genuinely mean it. I'm so excited to talk to my guests today. We're going to talk about the 1932 film Freaks, directed by Todd Browning. This is a film that I have wanted to do since I started doing this podcast back in 2019, and I'm thrilled to be talking about it with my guest today, Katrina Kemp. Hi, Katrina. Hey, hey. Uh, Katrina, we were introduced through a mutual friend and, uh, she's generously agreed to come and talk about this movie with me. And before we get honored, I'm honored too. I mean, I'm like, you know, we're going to talk about it, but like, I'm a huge phantom of the opera fan and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Katrina's going to tell you, um, you're, you're about to tour with love never dies. So, but I'm I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. the, The sequel to phantom. I'm getting ahead of myself. Katrina, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? So my name is Katrina Kemp, and I was connected to Annie through my friend Eugene, who is a person with dwarfism. And we've been friends through the community Little People of America because we're both people with dwarfism who attend this event that happens uh, multiple times throughout the year where groups of little people from around the country or the world get together and all of us have like a giant blowout celebration for an entire week or weekend. And he and I just always connected on working within the entertainment industry and uh, just the effect that little people have on pop culture. And he knows that I'm a performer, I'm a comedian, I'm a singer, and I've had the privilege and opportunity to be in multiple TV shows and productions and uh, stage shows that deal with showing disability in a more positive light and having the ability to talk and engage with people about disability rights and disabled people in the arts without the um, threat of being exploited and maybe talk about those themes as well through playing the character. And yes, I have toured for uh, 18 months between 2017 and 2018 with the show Love Never Dies, which is the Andrew Lloyd Webber sequel to the Phantom of the Opera musical. And I completed 410 shows of that tour as a principal character, which is virtually unheard of for a person with dwarfism. And I greatly, greatly thank Andrew and his team for envisioning that character as a person with dwarfism. And uh, the character's name is Fleck, the aerialist extraordinaire. And she essentially plays Phantom's right-hand henchwoman. And um, when the pandemic hit, uh, I became more closely involved with my post-production side of my career, uh, where I am the 
story associate producer on RuPaul's Drag Race and um, have been working on that for the past couple of years. And now that uh, Andrew's longtime goal, I believe, has to have Love Never Dies go on tour to Asia. And um, so I just I got the call this year that he wants me to come back as Fleck and complete a an almost year long tour of uh, multiple cities in China. So right now I know that I'm going to Shanghai to open the show and I'm leaving in two days to begin the rehearsals in the UK. And I'm super excited. And I saw that you're a fan of Phantom and I was like, okay, it's meant to be, we gotta, we gotta get, this. <sighs> we gotta hook up on this. <laughs> this is, we're talking to a celebrity guys on the podcast. Today. I, yeah, I did. I'm so, that's so exciting and amazing. And, um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm a huge fan of the book. I'm like a big fandom of the opera fan. And I actually did, uh, a bonus episode for this show on, which is on my Patreon is patreon.com slash girls guts giallo for anybody listening. If you want to sign up and listen about, uh, the book, the stage production, the films, uh, it was like a big bonus episode with uh, my friend Sid Bronca and, we, you know, talked about themes, of course, of disability. Uh, and uh, I also did like six weeks on my Patreon of just screening different adaptations of The Phantom and introducing them for my patrons. So obviously a big fan. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I feel like it's really like kismet. I mean, also the theme that I'm doing this month for the Patreon is uh, about horror, freakery, and the carnivalesque. So I sort of, my, uh, my themes, so I had the Phantom theme and then I'm, I've sort of moved into fairy tales, erotic fairy tales, because fairy tales also have a ton of, um, I'm themes about disability and also Phantom of the Opera is basically beauty and the beast. Right. So we, right. we, we talked about fairy tales and now we're moving into the carnivalesque. So it all, it, it's all connected. It's all really connected. So you're literally the perfect person to talk about this with. And I'm totally nerding out. So before we get into the his, some of the, the history of sideshows, I wanted to ask you, Katrina, what is your experience with this film? When did you first see it? See it? How did you feel about it? How do you feel about it now? Um, well, it's funny because I, you know, always considered myself a, a connoisseur of dwarfism history and love educating people when they have questions um, because people are filled with questions when they've never met somebody with dwarfism. You know, it's it's everything from curiosity to exploitation to just downright like ridiculous questions and I'm always like that person that will try to remain like as patient as possible if I'm in the mood that day right but um <laughs> what shocked me was is that by the time I was 21 I had actually never heard of this film and I was dating a woman at the time who I still wasn't 
fully out of the closet at that time even. And she was somebody who was very much into cult films and uh, horror. And so she educated me on this film and showed me what it was. And I was instantly captivated and obsessed and like, this is a part of my identity now (laughs) Um, because it does feel like it is a part of my dwarfism community's history in the way that, you know, Wizard of Oz would be upheld in that way. And there's, there's a select few of people who have asked me about this film over the years. And I'm so happy when I get a chance to meet those people because they usually tend to be very empathetic and um, educated people on multiple subjects and what was going on within history at that time. And um, I love this film so much. And so the first time I watched it, I was experiencing such a catharsis that blew my expectations of what little people in America were capable of during that time period, because I only knew of like, you know, Billy Barty was somebody who, um, he really was like a change maker and somebody who was a a child during the time that this film freaks had come out and then, um, was in so many productions and was changing so many people's ideas about what people with dwarfism were capable of in society that he was really only my like take on it. And then as I um, dive deeper past the film, I, uh, you know, got way, I I ended up joining the circus and in 2010, 2011, I really, really started deep diving on, the history of P.T. Barnum, dwarfism, exploitation, and how even in modern day society, we still have remnants of this exploitation that goes on. And I knew ever since I was a child, um, deep down somewhere in my DNA that that was very real and that it was going to be one of my MOs and one of my missions in life to change and subvert that narrative of not just people with dwarfism, but to be an advocate for people with disabilities in art and expressing yourself. And um, I just love the film so much and it's it's interesting that at that time little people would have been given the opportunity to be in sideshows and it must have been like in such a wild encounter to see little people on a big screen being treated like a movie star when in for the people with dwarfism living in the real world, they were not able to attend 
a regular public school and learn how to read and write until the 1950s because of people like Billy Barty, who some would say looking at his old stuff, you know, might verge on somebody exploiting themselves like for comedic purposes and using their height as a way to express himself and stories. But he was using that vehicle to change real world uh, lives within um, society. So he really began Little People of America as a way to bridge the community. And he was like, you make shoes? Cool. You make furniture? Great. You know how to, you know, fix things and fix cars and get people driving. Let's all get together as a community. And then he started changing government policies, allowing people with dwarfism to begin going to school, getting regular jobs and advocating for them in that way. I don't know how he felt about the movie Freaks, but I would be very, very interested to to find out. Yeah. If anybody wants to email me girlsgutsjello at gmail.com, if you know about that, please get in touch with us. I, my experience with this film was I saw it in high school and I have always been obsessed with horror, obviously. And I saw it on a show called Bravo's Scariest Movie Moments. And, (laughs) (laughs) And it's the climax of the film. And when I watched the film, I didn't find it scary because I was totally rooting for them. And I was like, yeah, I get her ass. So (laughs) (laughs) right, she's such a bitch. And I felt totally aligned with the freaks and was cheering for them. And sure, it's like scary imagery. You know, it's dark, it's stormy, it's raining, like there's knives, you know, there's there's horror there, but not in the way that it had been talked about on that show. And I immediately felt like, I think, you know, this is something I was talking about with my girlfriend last night. I think as somebody who is a dyke and, um, a weirdo and has tattoos and is a fat person and has disabilities myself related to chronic pain. This was always, I always felt aligned with these characters right? and and that these were my people. And I found it very moving and I still find it very moving watching it all these years later and having watched it many times now. And it's, I I think it's just a very enigmatic singular film. There's really nothing else like it, even to this day, you know, even I was, I was rewatching the American horror story freak show season. And even you know, that also showcases a lot of performers with disabilities and it's, it just doesn't, it's very entertaining, but it just like cannot compare to this. Like this is just something else entirely. And 
we're going to get, we're going to get into it. So before we get into the movie, I want to talk about some of the history of sideshows because I really want to give, I really wanted to give this topic the full like research that it deserves because I think that a lot of people listening to this will are interested in these topics and probably know about some of this stuff. But I, I think giving the whole context of what we're talking about here will really drive home the importance of this film. So I got almost all of my information about the history of sideshows from the book Freak Show, Presenting Human Oddities by Robert Bogdan. And I so Robert Bogdan says that the closest ancestors to the sideshow started in the early Renaissance where people even then with disabilities were being exhibited or exhibiting themselves in sideshows for a fee. Uh, human oddities, as they were called, quote unquote, were shown usually as single attractions as opposed to being part of a troupe that came later. And with the troupe atmosphere and the carnival atmosphere, that is when disabled people and performers started to form communities and uh, be, you know, before that they lived very like isolated sort of existences, uh, not around other people of their experience. The first time that we see in, cause we're really talking about American sideshows today. The first time that we see an ad for an American sideshow was in 1738. Um, and it was an ad about a woman who was taken, quote unquote, very chilling, in a, a wood in Guinea, uh, a female about four feet high, uh, in every part like a woman, excepting her head, which nearly resembles the ape. It, you know, of course, we don't actually know much about the, the real woman here that they're describing. Uh, so decades before the American Revolution, there were human exhibits who were later going to be called freaks. And that is the terminology I'm going to be using throughout, because that is the terminology of the film and the terminology of these sideshows. And they were being presented. But this was also, of course, heavily racialized and something that I knew already intuitively, but didn't know really until I read this book was the history of race and disability as being very enmeshed in the U.S. Um, people and exploitation yes. and colonization. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even, you know, this, this woman with dwarfism who's taken in the wood in Guinea, you know, like that, really encapsulates this, like the, the history of race and disability and eugenics and race science is extremely tied together here. Um, people from non-Western societies were being exhibited as oddities along with people with missing limbs or people with dwarfism. So it, it was seen as very as, as the same thing to like the colonial white gaze. And by the late 18th century, the belief that human oddities were evil omens or workings of witchcraft, right? Because 
different people who look different have always been subjected to that. Uh, there works that that's the devil. Um, you know, that's the, your, the deformity is like evidence of evil, um, or punishment for transgressions. So that idea was fading and was being replaced with this idea that everybody is part of God's great order of creatures. Uh, and, therefore subject to scientific study and classification. So it's never, it's, it's never, right. Exactly. It's never benevolent. It's, it's never like, uh, and that means we should leave them alone. Yeah. And what's interesting is that during this exact same time period of the 1700s and before that we have such clear evidence of for example, people with dwarfism being bought, sold, and traded as slaves among royalty. And that was a person with dwarfism's purpose. And perhaps if you had another type of disability, you may be taken in beyond the castle walls. But if you were not... uh performing or doing some kind of interesting, you know, whatever exploitation of yourself, you were cast out of the community and probably killed because your peasant family could not take care of you. Right. Yeah. There's, and there's so many uh, paintings and such from the Renaissance, which, showcase that exactly what you're talking about, where people would be paint. And this is again, race and disability comes into play together. People would be painted with their quote unquote possessions. And some of those possessions were literal human beings like people with dwarfism or enslaved people. And you can see that in some paintings. Like, um, there's also, uh, people with dwarfism would model for paintings in the Renaissance where there was supposed to be a scene of like chaos and decadence, uh, like, uh, Tintoretto's last supper. There were people with dwarfism, I believe to kind of show like this sort of debauched party atmosphere. And it's either always that depicted as that or the nobility always has a hand placed on top of their head right to show their strength and show what they're capable of doing is that they are wealthy and noble enough to own another human being that quote unquote needs them yeah it's it's horrific and it only just continued up until the point that what I think even people with disabilities find hard to admit sometimes is that sideshows and circus became a way out of that um, subservient life. And it became a way for them to connect with other people in the disability community and people who were empathetic and felt like just completely comfortable around people with disabilities when doing their job. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of uh, camaraderie between 
And also tension, as we're going to see in the film, too, between like the quote unquote self-made freaks and like the natural born quote unquote freaks. Um, So by the late 18th century, um, well, actually, in the yeah, the last decades of the 18th century, in the first decades of the 19th, scientists began to open museums in American cities that were hodgepodges of exhibits like paintings, stuffed animals. And I don't mean like teddy bears. I mean, like stuffed cheetahs, you know, like you would see in the American Museum of Natural History, live animals, wax figures, mechanical devices, light shows and other artifacts brought back by sailors and explorers and human curiosity curiosities were exhibited from the start. So people from non-Western cultures as well as disabled people were of interest. And the science of teratology, meaning the science of disability and specifically of, of deformity, was really like on the rise at this time. So human oddities were absorbed fully by museums by the mid 1800s. And there still there wasn't a community. These uh, acts were being exhibited as independent oddities or were often um, that it was with their family who was doing it to make money to take care of them or or outright exploiting them. Uh, And they were not attached to community at this time. So uh, but by becoming attached to museums and later to circuses, showmen and exhibits were incorporated into like a burgeoning industry of, of the amusement industry and thus joined the segment of the society that was in process of developing a way of life apart from the mainstream. So we're starting to get subculture and the freak show took on a life of its own. P.T. Barnum seized on the idea of the museum as an amusement center and launched what's called the American Museum in 1841. So the cabinet, what would what was originally called the Cabinet of Curiosities, transformed into the Dime Museum. So overnight, Barnum transformed the museum into an entertainment center where families could come with picnic lunches and spend the day. And by 1850, it was the premier attraction of New York City. A fire destroyed the American Museum in 1868. Barnum is known for the circus, but it was really the museum that was his primary calling, and it was a national force. So out of the American Museum comes what are called the Dime Museum. So those are early sideshows. So freak shows were the main attractions from 1870 to 1900. And upsettingly, uh, freak hunting was now a full-time occupation. So um, managers and their agents would search the world for people with anomalies to exhibit. Dime museums eventually became so sleazy and fraudulent that quote-unquote respectable citizens began to desert them, leaving them to immigrants and country bumpkins, and that's what the carnival culture is eventually going to come out of. So as a sideshow, the freak show was an integral part of the circus and circus culture. So circuses have many elements, jugglers, aerial artists, clowns, trained animals, menageries, museums, and that all of those arts existed independently in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And they all come together in the mid 1800s to form the, the circus. And by the turn of the century, there was close to 100 circuses. 
around the U.S. During its golden era from roughly 1870 to 1920, the circus was the major organization of popular amusement for rural Americans. By the 1920s, it was declining because cities and even small towns had movie houses and vaudeville tours and the radio was becoming a force. So by the end of the 1930s, circuses are seriously economically suffering. So single human oddities started hooking up with traveling circuses in the early 1800s, but it was only towards the mid-century that they're organized into anything like a sideshow. And museums began traveling with circuses around 1837. By 1880, the freak show is the main attraction and it becomes a standard circus fixture. It made the most money for the circuses. So there's so much history here with like the devaluing of the people that are making the most money. Uh, like the circus could not survive. Basically what I found out was that they could not have survived without these sideshows. Amusement parks also started to develop because of stuff like the world's fair where people could go on a Ferris wheel that started to become very popular. Coney Island, which I know, um, love never dies is set on Coney Island. So yeah. 1907. 1907. Yeah. So Coney Island became a bustling resort in the 1870s. And the first freak show there was in 1880. And Coney Island became an epicenter for freak shows. So exactly during this period where the, the show is set between like 1910 and 1940, no single place in the world had more human oddities on exhibit. There were really renowned performers like Lavinia Warren, who was the wife of General Tom Thumb. And Henry Johnson, who was also known as Zip the Pinhead. And they were at uh, the Dreamland, which is what it was called before it was uh, burned down in 1911. There were so many problems with fires in New York City during the 1800s and early 1900s. So this guy named Samuel W. Gumperts went into his own freak show business. He builds the Dreamland Sideshow, and it was a huge success. And in 1920, this blows my mind, as many as 30,000 patrons a day were visiting this sideshow. Um, but the, And that was in its heyday. But by 1930, you were lucky to get 8,000. So carnivals developed during the last decade of the 19th century. Not every town was large enough to support an amusement park like Coney Island. So the carnival was sort of replicating that. Like it provided for small town America what the large amusement park provided for the urban masses. And human oddities were exhibited there as well. And at first they weren't as highbrow as someone like Lavinia Warren. Um, Like they didn't attract like the prime sideshow exhibits. So they had things like... Uh, wild men or geeks and what we're known as like minor freaks. Um, Carnivals around 1904 become more lucrative. They were sort of copies of circus sideshows. And as it developed, the most popular show was the freak show at the carnival, which was considered central again to the financial well-being of the carnival. So the sideshow history is that it is usually the most important part of the circus or the carnival or the, 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 the museum, quote unquote. So a few mass audience films featuring 
human oddities were released in the 1920s and 1930s, of which Todd Browning's Freaks is the most popular. And then this is kind of interesting to me, right? Because we're talking a lot about like, it, it, as with all things I talk about on this show, nothing is ever one thing, right? Like the sideshow environment is obviously heavily exploitative and it is also a place where people with disabilities are finally able to have community with each other. That's what I was going to say is the, the catch 22 of imagine yourself as a disabled person in the 19 early 1900s and you're forced to leave home either sold from your family adopted out uh you know some type of conservatorship situation or caretaker situation or by free will and you're excited about your freedom to actually make maybe a little bit of your own money for the first time in your life. However, you're riding the caboose of the train and you're designated to a separate tent than everybody else. Um, And so it's a hard juxtaposition to imagine yourself in, but it still happens in modern day society. Those hard, um, conversations you have to have with yourself as somebody uh, with a very noticeable physical disability where you can start to feel like, am I exploiting myself? Am I allowing this to happen? Or am I allowing other people's perceptions and, you know, questions to get to you? Like, well, if by, by, you know, for example, myself, when I joined the circus, um, I had a pretty fun role and, you know, I was in a corset like everyone else. I was in makeup with everyone else. I had, uh, gorgeous costumes. I was, uh, running around with a little riding crop and was like the mistress, Hi. the madam, madam character who was keeping all of the other minions in line and was right hand woman to the ringmaster. And maybe that harkens back on like the nobility and like the hierarchy and all of that. But at the same time, it shows that those people were trusted with some positions of power within the circus. And, and that really started to pop up with people like P.T. Barnum, who eventually saw the the realness that somebody like Lavinia Warren brought to uh, his business mindset and her business mindset on what they were able to achieve. And um, you mentioned so many things that I have like <laughs> cosmic ties to. Wow. Also like you, you mentioned three specific things that I've either been a part of productions or very serious high profile auditions where all of these stories were flirted about or uh, just the opportunity to be able to play characters that were a part of that world. Mm. And um, 
One of them was the uh, freak show season of American Horror Story way back in the day, maybe 10 years ago. Um, Ryan Murphy and his crew flew me to New Orleans to go be a part of the show. And I was like, obviously, of course, yes, and was already used to the circus. And I knew once I went out there, I was going to meet all these other circus performers, including all these these other little people. And I was there billed as the role Mon Petit, mm-hmm. who is in that season. And I got to spend an entire day with Jessica Lang and had, you know, a wonderful time working with her. And we were shooting the promos and then hearkening back to that circus world of one of my circus friends, you know, he always used to say, Katrina, if you want to be small, be the smallest. If you want to be tall, be the tallest, whatever you do, like bill yourself as whatever is the most extreme. And, you know, I ended up losing the role, the television role of Mon Petit to the woman who was the world's smallest woman at that time. Mm. And she is the actress who you end up seeing in the final season of that show. Um, I was in, in the commercials, but, you know, I was like, it makes sense to, you know, yeah, hell yeah book the smallest woman in the world you know she needs gigs too and um then you also mentioned lavinia warren uh i want to say again maybe nine ten years ago i had the opportunity to do at least three or four very very intense pages and pages of monologues as lavinia with a project that Hugh Jackman had signed on to. And originally um, that story was going to be about P.T. Barnum and more a biography on his rise of circus stardom, his impact and how he, you know, wasn't a perfect person, but how he changed pop culture and he changed other people's lives that were surrounding him within the circus. And one of those things was giving people opportunities because he saw the value in them. And it was somebody who had written this, wrote it in such a way that they alluded to the fact that Lavinia and P.T. Barnum actually had chemistry Mm. and maybe had some secret sort of love affair and attraction that was very, very, very strong for Lavinia because he did go and scout her and essentially begged her to join his circus when he visited her hometown and made sure that he was gifting her things and assuring her family that she would be taken care of. But he saw, he was like, oh, she's a businesswoman. She was more taken care of. She was healthy. She, um, you know, was obviously beautiful and adorable. And he was like, I want all of that. Of course, that doesn't look good for somebody in his status to be fraternizing, dating, whatever, somebody with a disability. And that would compromise his ultimate goal, which was to be like 
the king of his own kingdom, which has reverberated into uh, employers who I've met that have fetishes for people with disabilities mm. and specifically hiring people with dwarfism who, um, you know, they just really want to be, I call them LP collectors and LP is short for little people collectors, but you know, and I'll always end up hearing later those people saying in interviews and whatnot, Oh, I want to be the next PT Barnum and so on. And so I thought it was an interesting take that this writer of the screenplay had taken where, um, Obviously, it would later show that, again, with um, our current society, you know, studio execs were not willing to take that next step to go deeper into Lavinia's story or General Tom Thumbs. And so they uh, veered over to having me also read for the male role of Tom later on and then the whole thing ended up getting scrapped and turned into that Hugh Jackman musical mm. um oh my god the greatest showman the greatest showman and um yeah it became you know like a P.T. Barnum high school musical moment right <laughs> and um you know they ended up putting a a little sprinkle of that idea of uh how huge the impact was that people of dwarfism had within his circuses. But because of our society today, you know, they were like, actually, you know, in order to sell more tickets in their mind, they're like, we also need to CGI the actor with dwarfism's face. We're going to CGI his body and, also, we're not going to train him how to sing or do any accent training. So we're just going to dub over him. It, and it's still in, in such a way, just a modern reminiscent idea of like if Lavinia um, and Tom Thumb, who were married at the time, they were essentially like the Brad and Angelina of their time. And like they were even given access by Abe Lincoln to have their wedding at the White House and so on. Like the magnitude of their impact on pop culture at that time, it just has so much little recognition today that I just thought that that was such an interesting story. Um, but it just shows that a lot of people are not ready to have those conversations and admit to the the fact that there is such a large impact that people with disabilities have had on art through putting themselves out there in their physicalness. Yeah, that's such a good point because again, like I'm saying, like these, it, these acts were the ones that were making the money. Like these places could not have survived without the, the freak shows. And yeah, that really illustrates that point um 
of that part being written out of the greatest showman it yeah it's just more like sweeping it sweeping it under the rug by by like the 1950s well actually really by the late 1930s the rise of eugenics and the belief that undesirable traits quote unquote should be bred out um started to that was on the rise and the freak shows suffered and eventually disappeared so again more catch 22s because um people began to see these shows as unsavory and exploitative and freaks went from curiosities quote unquote to humble and unfortunate pathological rarities And in fact, these sort of patronizingly, quote unquote, sympathetic viewpoints actually fed into the eugenics movement. And it was believed that it was cruel to allow people with deformities to exist and breed. Um, So it wasn't that it was like, oh, this is exploitative. Um, You know, people should just have equal rights. It was it's exploitative. Let's hide them, actually. Like nobody wants to see that. And uh, it's like between the double bind of the two, like which one is the better, like being held up as a performer in a freak show and, you know, being able to have community and or being like hidden away again um, and viewed as like a quote unquote mistake instead of like um, um, a curiosity to sort of be celebrated. So it was, you know, it's the double bind there that like so many oppressed people have to deal with. And by the late 1930s, the transformation of those with physical and mental anomalies from curiosities to quote unquote diseased people was like complete. So by the 1950s, the freak show, you know, as we see in the American horror story season is like, very looked down on they're disappearing and on its way out on its way out yeah exactly and there's an um very very interesting documentary uh that i was a part of last year it hasn't been released yet but i'm just going to tell you because i know that you would find it interesting but we go over a lot of these topics within dwarfism history and then simultaneously the the entire film was spearheaded and made by people with dwarfism amazing and there are um a very diverse group of crew members that helped make it all happen at the barishnikov center in new york city and we um have stories that are cut with narrative monologue sequences written by people with dwarfism about uh, famous photos in history. And they've chosen subjects within the photos to write in first person as them. And one of those characters I ended up playing um, was taken from a photo of the singers midgets, which was a famous group of little people who were constantly interchangeable and when circuses were on their way out and during the depression when you know even food was hard to come by for an average person they were grouping little people together 
in such a way that, you know, it was still allowing sort of a kind of a bridge between circus and vaudeville because some of those little people would have other talents that they, the, the, uh, average height owners of these troops were riding the coattails of, and then they would just go through these towns and pluck and purchase and trade all of these other little people. And, um, one of those women, we don't know her name, but they plucked her out of this photo and this amazing writer performer who I'm good friends with her name's Sarah Fulkins. She, um, wrote this narrative of a woman who is has dwarfism and she's a lesbian in this troupe without saying she's a lesbian. She basically shares this long winded monologue about how she's lost the love of her life who is another woman with dwarfism who we don't know. But all we know is that her girlfriend, uh, who she was sharing a bed with, sharing pieces of food with, sharing clothes with, was essentially taken in the night and sold without any prior knowledge. And to say, like, as somebody who has a beautiful partner currently and she's a beautiful burlesque performer and person inside and out like I can't imagine at that time if you know and we had met through the circus at that if we met in the circus just some decades ago you know we could be torn apart without ever being able to reconnect and so the character is reaching out to this photographer uh person that's on the other essentially the gaze of the audience begging this person like here's my information if you see her tell her this is our next stop and so on and so on and so on and it was just heartbreaking and i was like i have to be a part of this you know it's it's uh right now still in the post-production phase but it's going to be called how we look and um the directors are uh julie wyman who is a professor at uc davis she is somebody who has dwarfism but didn't essentially know that throughout her life she ended up finding out later in life and she's also queer and um her creative uh director sophia cheyenne who is also a disability advocate and one of the people who's spearheading now like the very first diversity uh, wing of little people of America. Um, So it's, it's going to be a very interesting project. That sounds amazing. And they also go into, yeah, they also go into the idea of, um, you know, a first person look as a male a presenting person being subject in one of those nobility paintings of the Renaissance period and his first person account of what it's like to be a grown ass man, but he's subservient to a very young prince who has his hand on top of his head. So it's always playing with those themes of emasculation and 
um, gender discrepancy. And um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it coming out. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And especially that there's this aspect of queer disability history, which is so hidden and so, so like worthy and fascinating and interesting to talk about. And yeah, that's, I mean, I was like getting chills when you were talking about the um, the little person with the le- in the lesbian relationship and like comparing yeah. it to your own life, like yeah, so um, so per- true and pertinent. Of you know, it, we're not that far away from that, and no, not yeah, at all. exactly. And just the experience of like not only being a little person, but also being a woman, not just being a woman, being a queer woman and, you know, just the layers there of oppression and what those women would have had to deal with. Um, like I find very moving to talk about. So I'm really excited to see that. Uh, and really, it's really amazing that you got to, to do that monologue. Um, And Freaks is such a visual representation of that photo that they used for this documentary because uh, Frida is given such limited options. And um, even though Hans also has dwarfism, he still has the freedom to choose. Yes. Whereas Frida only has the ability and the strength to advocate for herself the only ways that she knows how. Yeah. And I mean, she's on my on my most recent rewatch of this for this episode. I was like, well, this is the best character. Like (laughs) Frida is the 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 best character in the film. And it's like so we don't talk about her enough. So I'm excited to get into that. Yeah. I first wanted to give some background about Todd Browning. So Todd Browning was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1880. And as a child, he would perform shows in his backyard that he charged the neighborhood kids to watch. And he ran away from home when he was 16 and joined the circus where he worked as a clown and a contortionist. So he had a lot of exposure and experience with circus performers, which probably lends itself to the extremely sympathetic view that he takes in this film. And he later worked in vaudeville. Um, His film career began with acting and he was directing features within four years. His first film was called The Lucky Transfer. It's from 1915. He made several films with Lon Chaney. Uh, These films were known for alarming audiences as well as making a lot of money. And in the films, Chaney often played physically disabled characters for shock effect. Uh, he, He also famously played the Phantom of the Opera, right? So it's all sort of tied together. Interesting fact about Lon Chaney, he's, uh, he was a child of deaf adults. Uh, so that is part of why he was so, uh, and he knew ASL and that was part of why he was so apt at pantomime in silent films because, uh, he growing up, he 
you know, communicated with his parents through, you know, facial expression and, and through ASL, which, you know, if you really want to emphasize something in my understanding in sign language, you know, you have to really, you know, emphasize it with your body to really like convey what the, the emotion of what you're talking about. So when he died, uh, a whole group of disabled people, including many little people, came to his, his funeral service to honor him as a member of the community. So that's, I feel like, important for his story. Uh, yeah, anybody that has more than one little person show up to a party or a funeral, like, you're cool as hell. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Known within our community too. Like, yes. Oh yeah. He's cool. He's with us. I fucking agree. Like I, uh, that, like that's that, that there, what, what kind of party are you having if there are no disabled people there? Like, <laughs> right. And I feel like the, the men that made this movie happen, they were people who were just like, Oh, like so comfortable with, disabled bodies and lives and outlook and point of view that they were like, Oh, it's just a given. Like we're just telling a story about people, but what's going to be interesting is that now it's like somewhat of an expose of what everybody, you know, who loves show business really is like that look behind the curtain Mm. that look behind the tent that voyeuristic idea of what's really going on behind there before they come out and are like showing that professionalism right you know i i had a really interesting quote here actually that i looked up and saw it was somebody from the new yorker named john mosher or mosher perhaps um he wrote a review of the movie he called it a little gem that stands in a class by itself and probably won't be forgotten in a hurry by those who see it he said that freaks was a perfectly plausible story which is what i love about the film he said a key to the effectiveness of its horror writing that It's a chilling notion, I would imagine, for people to imagine these weird beings with their own lives and vanities and passions all allied in a bitter enmity against us. And I just thought that quote was so interesting because it, you know, I still get it all the time in such a way in modern uh, day is like people who come up to me with so many questions of like, either assuming that I only live off of the government and that I'm somehow, you know, just bypassing having to do anything hard in life because this myth that if you have a disability, you easily get some kind of government subsidy, which is just not true. No. <laughs> and it's, it's not my life at all. It's not easy and to get. <laughs> I've never received such a thing because if I did, you are not allowed to have more than around two or three thousand dollars worth of assets and that's just not survivable for me as a working professional in los angeles with multiple careers and so it's very much like that 
idea people come up to me with assuming this about me already. So their questions are extremely low brow, like, you know, do you wish you were tall and I wish you, you were wish- dead? <laughs> 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 you know, they're like, do you wish you could, you know, do you do you have jobs? Can you work? Can you can you read? Can you write? Like Ugh. these kinds of things. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, y'all like turn a freaking television on and watch a reality show or something like you know, it, it's just, it's really, really wild. And so I love that quote because it is so hard for people to imagine that also, you know, going back to that, I get, have all throughout my life, I get a lot of people who have openly stated to me, they have a fear of little people. And it's like, no matter what race, gender, um, a person with dwarfism is they are afraid of us because of and I always ask them their answer is always because of xyz horror film that painted a little person in such a way or a little person actor with practical effects makeup or something freaked them out like as a child and I'm like we are truly the last acceptable group of people to be spoken to so openly this way, because I cannot imagine somebody walking up to one of my Asian friends or black friends or Hispanic friends and saying, I have a fear of you. Let's talk about that. Why do I have a fear of you? They'll talk about it alone, but they won't talk about it to your face. Exactly. But little people are seen as such a non threat that um, that's how we've been, you know, acceptably seen. So for freaks to show a group of people with disabilities banding together and being a motherfucking threat, that must have been like, you know, holy shit, everything that me, an average height, able-bodied person have been told, like, is a lie. Like, who else else could possibly, um, you know have more confidence than me or have more autonomy. And at that time, you know, when the film was coming out and the depression is going on, oh my God, they have a job and I don't. Right. So it's all of these like ticking of all these boxes and things that these men did to really try and get into people's psyche by just showing people with disabilities being their damn selves. Mm-hmm. And I love some of my favorite scenes in the film are there, there is no talking even happening. It's mm-hmm. just showing people with disabilities doing, just doing, being, living, yes. which is so powerful is. at that time because it would have been so many questions of that people may not even be asking themselves, which is such a huge part of our dwarfism advocacy is, is like put yourself in our shoes if you are the height of an average height child, how would you expect to make your way around the world and be expected to do and live as a functioning adult? So the people in this film are functioning adults and they are just fine, you know? But um, then of course, just with 
the modern world, it's like we still have those discrepancies between um, genders, queerness, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, racism. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in the film itself, like has complicated history of, of the like, some of these double binds. Um, like, for example, the film was also, you know, re-released as The Monster Story or Forbidden Love or Nature's Mistakes, you know, like as a way to sort of market it to like a more mainstream audience. Um, it was partly based on a short story called Spurs, uh, from 1923, which was written by Todd Robbins and published in Muncie's magazine. So it was a pulp story originally. Um, and Browning had known of the story for years before filming through his friend Harry Earls, who plays Hans. So Hans and um, so Harry Earls and Todd Browning were actually friends. Um, they might have met through the circus circuit. Um, MGM art department chief, uh, chief Cedric Gibbons was a childhood friend of Todd Robbins. So it was easy to purchase the story for $8,000. Um, and it was released by MGM to compete with universal horror. So Todd Browning had also made Dracula in 1931 through, uh, universal, which was like a huge hit. Um, so, Freaks producer Irving Thalberg told him like he had to compete by making the scariest film possible. So Thalberg was certain that the film would be successful um, because of Dracula and all of uh, Todd Browning's other horror films. So all of the actors in this film that we see who play the sideshow performers, the freaks, were actual sideshow performers in real life. Many of them were seasoned professionals. Uh, Harry Earls was a German actor with dwarfism who plays Hans, and he was part of uh, the Dahl family, and which um, they they were also in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, And he had also worked with Todd Browning already on The Unholy Three from 1925, which was also based on a Todd Robbins novel. So we're going to get I'm going to get into all of the performers in when we go through the actual plot of the film. Uh, But Myrna Loy and Jean Harlow were originally considered for the leading roles, but it was. Oh, wow. Right. Can you imagine Jean Harlow? That would have been amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Olga Black Baklanova plays the villainous female lead Uh, and she recalls initially being disturbed by the performers playing the freaks and then eventually befriending them so the shooting only happened in nine weeks in 1931 the other people on the MGM lot other workers were so disturbed by the sideshow performers that the film's cast and crew were segregated to a separate commissary and separated from the actors and crew members working on other films. So on-set reactions to the freaks led many executives they were afraid that people wouldn't go see the movie. So they petitioned for the film to be stopped and the production was kept as non-visible as possible. So this movie was actually made against all odds, honestly. Um, yeah. And the, 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 they were really 
you know, again, like it's a very sympathetic film. And at the same time, like the working conditions must have been so messed up to experience like that segregation. There was a lot of sensational marketing. Uh, the film was advertised with a warning that children will not be permitted to see this picture and adults not in normal health are urged not to. There was the tagline, can a full grown woman truly love a midget? You know, like it was very like sensationalized. Like, could that That's really be a birthday gift I bought, uh, years later, um, for my ex who she had originally showed me the film was a vintage poster of this film. And I was like, I'm always somebody like I, you will never catch me using the word midget because it's just, it, it's a slur. And 100%. people who argue that I just always ask them name a time that that was a positive word. Right. And they can never name a, a positive interaction with that word. So I um, have in such a way felt that I reclaimed that word through this film. And um, I had purchased a, a vintage thing that said, can a midget, can a grown woman truly love a midget? And it was like, you know, still to this day, one of my favorite movie posters, because it's like, like bitch, yes. Obviously, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, and now, you know, uh, I love years that. later being a part of a vaudeville scene here in LA, it's just so awesome to be like being that reality and having more of a freedom here in Los Angeles, you know? And, um, I had a guy, I won this, uh, designer sweater contest with, um, he was like, you can make a sweater on anything. And he makes very like vintage looking like handmade sweaters out of these old, like they look like old blankets, but Ooh. he's like, you can print whatever you want on them. And so I printed multiple versions of the different freaks posters onto the sleeves, onto the back and on the front, it does say the, the OG quote, like, can a grown woman truly love a midget with like freaks going across my chest. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. I've worn it out and nobody ever questions me on it saying like midget on it. I think because I'm usually or when I do wear it, I'm normally around like people working in the industry. And so people will come up to me who I think recognize that it's being like reclaimed mm -hmm. in such a way. And I'm so, so thankful for that. And it just makes me want to like make more stuff like that you know because it does amazing. get such a reaction and Ugh. i'm such a like slut for yes reaction i fucking love that i mean that's why you're per the perfect guest for this show i mean honestly when you're like i gave it to my girlfriend i'm like that's so hot like that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's amazing because like uh, that was one of my better better presents <laughs> yes I mean this is like so I mean obviously because I'm like a lesbian I'm more excited by that it's just so much more exciting when it's two women I'm you like know, I had to tell you that yes <laughs> yes um the movie bombed at the box office um it 
it, the film did well in some cities um, like Cincinnati, Minneapolis, Buffalo, and Boston. It mixed critical reviews. <laughs> Variety faulted the film for its too fantastic romance, claiming that a direct quote, it is impossible for a normal man or woman to sympathize with the aspiring midget. Which, which I say, fuck off. Maybe for you. <laughs> oh my god! I remember there was a review while um, traveling with Love Never Dies through the Midwest, and it was such a stark difference from like traveling through all the cities in California and on the East Coast, and so on. And of course, we get to Ohio, and I wake up to like forty-five messages, and it's like my cast members advocating for me because a review of our sh like three week run had just come out and it was like literally the opening like sentence describing me like a principal for performer was like the midget ran around oh my and god it was just like we had gone through so many hundreds of shows by that point and my cast members knew how like integral my character was to the story that they were just like what <laughs> And obviously, like, they felt more educated and empowered to speak on my behalf in that scenario. So before I could even, like, wake up and see what had happened, the person, like, begrudgingly wrote this, like, shady email back and, like, took it down and just said, like, the short one or something like that. Oh, my God. And tried to say, like, well, colloquially, Midget was used back at, at in during the time that this story was taking okay, place. Okay, but that's not so what like, you were saying. <laughs> no, sweetie. Yeah. You're going to take that down. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to take it down right now. Yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's I'm sorry you had to experience that and also so glad that people advocated for you. Yeah, it's just so funny how that word midget is used by so many films and projects over the years to sensationalize um, through critics or like gossip rags yes. and even, you know, like Wizard of Oz, for example, had so much drama um, before it came out because there were all of these reports that, you know, the, the midgets were in a drunken rage and they were molesting uh, Dorothy and, Which, you know, like, never happened. <laughs> well... The truth is, is that there were um, two or three very chaotic people within the group of munchkin performers. And uh, those people, I, I've actually um, become friends with one of their family members who's mm. now like a very prominent producer. And um, funny Funnily enough, he's actually seven feet tall, but he had two uh, uncles who were little people. Oh, wow. And they were also in a love triangle with, uh, they were munchkins in Wizard of Oz, also in a love triangle with one of the women who was a munchkin. And she left one for the other and it was causing um, drama for them mm. while they were on the set of that film. And then there's a documentary that came out in the early 2000s. I was recently watching and um, they were mentioning, you know, is it true that you guys caused all this drama and blah, blah, blah. They were like, we had the best time ever. Everything was chill. However, I know for a fact they were putting like three people to a bed and 
you know, treating them separately from the rest of the crew and putting adults with children on set because, you know, little people are completely interchangeable in that way. And, you know, they, they said that it wasn't everyone. It was like a couple of bad eggs. But of course, these critics and gossip rags just like went to town on trying to like sensationalize and sell the film in that way. Of course, because like able-bodied people never have drama on set or anything. (laughs) Yeah. And um, there's another film I was a part of during the pandemic. It's called Seeing uh, Deanne Arbus and it's based on the, the very infamous, you know, freak loving photographer and um, how she was also, you know, orchestrated to be this person who was exploiting little people and wasn't really seen as serious artist until, you know, after she passed away mm-hmm. and a disability rights movement really changed. But the director of that film, uh, Lindsay Zeebach, amazing director, she, um, you know, studied under like and was assisting like Guillermo del Toro on his films. And so the film is very reminiscent of that, like horror thriller vibe, but then it gets very real when it comes to Deanne meeting my character. And I play basically a scorned, uh, ex munchkin actress from wizard of Oz who recognized that I used the film wizard of Oz as a vehicle to find my way out of poverty and getting a job. However, if you see the film, you'll see that, um, you know, and I worked with the director on this, but she allowed me to add actual like historical accounts within the monologue of like, yeah, everybody thinks it's great. And everybody wants to ask this, you know, the munchkins, how was it? How was Oz? How was Oz? How was Oz? Like that's their whole like believed like identity but in fact, it was very hard and it was very exploitive. And a lot of people thought, surely, like, this is going to lead to other things and so on and so on. But, you know, again, Wizard of Oz, not a commercial success until much later on. And these people were a lot of them were like refugees of the the war going on in Europe who were able to use Wizard of Oz as a way to get out of that situation and come to America and other people just like them. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Really interesting because, you know, during World War II, people with disabilities were being killed and genocided and, you know, that there's... Well, the the whole eugenics... um, movement that was going on when this film was made was happening at a time where in America there was Nazi sympathizers. Exactly. And before they knew about, you know, concentration camps and what all was really going on and how much territory, you know, the Nazis were able to take over there were people in America who were like, you know what, that guy, he's actually saying some real interesting things I might agree with. And so I, you know, I see these quotes that, you know, you've mentioned of people, you know, saying like that, you know, who it, it's a way to sympathize 
that by ending a disabled person's life or ability to even be um, conceived is it's good for them. Right. You know, this is this is so they don't have to live with the horror of what we as a society will do to them if they're born. (laughs) And it's so crazy because, you know, there's a family at this time, a very famous family of people with dwarfism. They actually have the same type of dwarfism as me. They were the Ovitz family and they uh, were essentially a vaudeville troupe that all had different talents um, who were traveling across Europe when they got interested by the Nazis who were going to put them in the gas chamber. And right before they put them in the gas chamber, that infamous um, Nazi general and Dr. Uh, Goebbels caught them just in time and was like, what do you think you're doing? Like, I want these people. And he was obsessed with them and he had them uh, perform at, you know, for all of the generals and everybody who was visiting and they were traveling with him. And um, there's an, an interview remaining alive women who, you know, her family's like, sweetie, you've been gaslit. And she's still somewhat like in a Stockholm syndrome where mm. she's like, he saved my life. And I'm now, you know, almost 90 years old and able to talk to you and I'm, you know, able to be a free woman and live with my family. However, you know, her family's like, but remember he did all these hideous tests on you and he was trying to fuck with your DNA and he, um, you know, forced you to perform and exploited you and killed millions of people. And, you know, and she, it was still like, hard for her to like see like the larger scope of all of that, even in just like her lifetime. And with the, the, again, the catch 22 with all of that is the science that has helped me and my longevity as a person with dwarfism came from that monster testing on people with dwarfism among many other disabilities. And so because of that, then you see more medical science happening in America that was able to make its way over and start really talking about and hammering down on where the gene of dwarfism came from. Why, how is it in some families? Why is it showing up randomly in others? And so on and so on and so on all came <clears throat> from that, that horror. Right. And, and it's just, I, I can't even imagine for somebody like that woman who had to watch all of her family members die before her who all had dwarfism, you know, and, and just kind of be alone with that idea that like, thank God he saved us, (laughs) you know, but also it's, yeah, it's so, so heavy. It's heavy. It's complicated. I mean, it's like how, modern gynecology is all based on experiments done on enslaved women in the United States. Like it's, it's a very like dark history and it's something that it's not history. It's very much in the present. It's very much 
happening right now, you know, time as I could get all philosophical with it, you know, time as like a linear construct is human invention. Like you can argue that all of these things are existing side by side all the time. Uh, And these histories are like very, it, it, it encapsulates that idea. Oh, my God.